Thanks, Ashley. Well, good morning. It's great to see you. Glad all of you are here with us. And my name is Daniel. I'm one of the pastors. And uh, before we're jumping into the uh, sermon, uh, I wanted to mention, if you didn't hear the announcements coming in, uh, that uh, we're hiring a full-time children's director, which we're really excited about. Uh, but it also means that the two uh, who have been serving within that capacity within our staff team are transitioning off. Uh, and so they, I think both families were at the 9 a.m., but the Hayslip, Sarah Hayslip is transitioning out in a few months. And then the Edwards, Allison Edwards and the family, they're moving to Athens, Georgia, and this is their last Sunday with us. And so uh, we lose them uh, in this transition. So if you see them, tell them thank you uh, for their service. Sarah will be with us a few more months before we make the hire. But uh, So there's some loss as well as excitement around that. If you've been with us, we've been in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, which is the most famous sermon ever preached, the sermon Jesus preached. And he starts this sermon in Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, by making eight bold and beautiful statements called the Beatitudes. And we recently preached our way through those eight statements. And in these statements, Jesus speaks in the third person. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek. He's describing the character of the person who's living the good life in the kingdom of God. And then in chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, Jesus switches to speaking in the second person. He's talking to his disciples and ultimately to us as Christians, and he says, you are, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And he's describing the impact that those in the kingdom of God will have in and on the world. In our passage this morning, Jesus switches to speaking in the first person. He says, I tell you. And he'll continue to do this in his, the remainder of his sermon. He's speaking directly and with great authority. I tell you. And so let's turn to our great teacher uh, and pray that he speaks directly and with great authority to us this morning. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we give attention to God's word and to this sermon Jesus preached. Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would come and speak to us with directness and with great authority, Jesus. Holy Spirit would... You bring alive the words Jesus preached 2,000 years and make them very real to us this morning. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts will be pleasing. Jesus, would you have your way in our lives this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. When was the last time you asked, does this really matter? Does this matter? What really matters? That's a big question. That's a question of meaning and purpose. What matters? In Western society and our cultural progressivism, I think everybody would agree that freedom matters. 
free to choose, free to live as we desire, even the freedom many have to move places of living with ease. Culturally, freedom matters. In Durham, North Carolina, one of the things I love about our city is that mostly across the board, inside and outside the church, equity matters. There's a heart for equitable housing and education and jobs. I think also in our city, education matters. Degrees and what institution your degree came from matters. The Triangle has the most advanced degrees per capita than any other part of our country. I'd also say that the education of our children matters. How should our children learn? Should they learn slow and unhurried, Montessori or classical, public, private, homeschool? Our children's education matters, and in large part because our and our children their success matters. Well, how about righteousness? Right living. Does righteousness matter? Does how we live matter? Whether we honor God or not in our lives. Does it matter if you scroll through pornography? It's just a screen. and It's not all the time. Does it matter how you spend your money? Even if you give a little bit of it away and you have the money to spend, does it matter? Does it matter if and how you file your taxes? I mean, Uncle Sam takes plenty of it anyway. Does it matter what you say on social media? It's your platform. Does it matter if you listen to mom and dad when they tell you no more screen time and to go to bed? I mean, you're going to get up for school the next day anyway. Does it matter if you have one too many alcoholic drinks? You're not driving anywhere. Do you desire to honor God with all of your life? And does it bother you when you don't? Jesus is preaching on the good life in God's kingdom, and he says righteousness matters. Verse 20, he says, Unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a big statement. Now, for some of you, your antennas are going up and This sure sounds like salvation by works, and if you've been with us, maybe this seems to contradict the first beatitude that we preached on a couple of months ago. Blessed are the poor in spirit. These two things contradictory? We have to always remember that being righteous and right living does not get us the love of God. It does not make someone a child of God. Rather, if you have the love of God, you will be righteous. Righteousness does not earn us God's love, but if we have God's love, if we are captured by God's love, righteousness will matter. Righteousness mattering is evidence of having received God's love. So what does it mean for us to pursue righteousness? For our righteousness to exceed the scribes and the Pharisees? I'll give three things that I think this means it means devotion to the whole Bible secondly deal dealing with the inner life and third it means delighting in salvation let's look first at devotion to the whole Bible Uh, verse 17 is the linchpin verse in many ways that helps us understand how Jesus views all of the scriptures look at verse 17 Jesus says do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Now, when Jesus says law and prophets, or you read law and prophets in other parts of the New Testament, it means the whole Old Testament. That's the way to refer to the Old Testament. 
the law and the prophets. So Jesus is not abolishing. Jesus is not doing away with or doing something new as compared to the Old Testament. Verse 18, he says, Not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. An iota or a dot is equivalent to our comma or our apostrophe. And Jesus is being very clear. There are no insignificant parts of the Bible. Every part is eternally significant. Now, we can be honest. There is a temptation for us to discount certain parts of the Bible. The parts of the Bible that are hard to understand, parts of the Bible that, that, that don't seem right to our sensibilities, parts of the Bible that aren't intellectually clear. Picking and choosing parts of the Bible is nothing new, by the way. It's been happening since the Bible was formed. Early churchmen like Marcion in the 3rd century cut out parts of the Old Testament that he didn't like. In the 4th century, Faustus did the same thing. And St. Augustine fought hard against Faustus to keep the whole Old Testament and New New Testament as the trustworthy and reliable rule of faith and practice for the church. Thankfully, Augustine won the day, and so the view of the Bible as sufficient and trustworthy carried. And it continued through the Dark Ages, and then Martin Luther and John Calvin in the 16th century upheld it and fought for it during the Reformation. But during the late 17th and into the 18th century, the movement of the Enlightenment gave rise to reason, to individual intellect, and people began to question and be critical of the Bible. And from then to today, there are many that want to cut out parts of the Bible, just like Thomas Jefferson did for his Bible. He had the Jeffersonian Bible. Or we may want to dismiss parts of the Bible that just don't jive with what we might think to be true of God or true of us or true of the world. So I I want to give you some reasons to be devoted to the whole Bible. Here's the first reason. Jesus was devoted to the whole Bible. Jesus trusted in the Old Testament as God's word. When Jesus was in the desert being tempted, he responded to temptation with Old Testament scripture. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he quoted from memory Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It has been said that when Jesus was poked, he bled scripture. Jesus, the Son of God, hung his trust and his faith in his Father on the very words of the Old Testament. Jesus trusted the Old Testament. Don't you think we can too? Here's the second reason for being devoted to the whole Bible, is that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Jesus fills up the Old Testament. The Old Testament is not a story of fables and tales. Every story of the Old Testament finds its culmination in Jesus Christ. He fills it up. That's what Jesus tells the two men as they're walking on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. He appears to them after the resurrection, and he opens up the Old Testament, and he tells them how all of the law and the prophets spoke of himself, how everything points to Jesus, that Jesus is the greater Isaac, the true sacrifice who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the greater Joshua who leads us into the true promised land. Jesus is the greater David, a king who not only slays Goliath but slays death itself. Jesus is the true prophet who speaks the truth of God and is the truth of God. Jesus is the true priest 
who always lives to intercede for us. Even right now, he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the true temple, the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Jesus is the true king who rules and reigns perfectly with love and grace. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says in its beginning, something we read with our children often, the beginning of the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says every story whispers his name. Every story finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And Jesus fulfills the sacrificial and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. I know that's confusing as we read ceremonial and sacrificial laws, but Jesus fulfills those. You realize we don't come in here on a Sunday morning, each of you with your goat and your lamb, ready for us to cut its neck and blood spill out on this stage for us to make a sacrifice to God. No, because Jesus is once and for all the final sacrifice. He fulfills the demands of the ceremonial and sacrificial law. Jesus fulfills all the predictive prophecy of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Jesus, Jesus fulfills all the moral law of the Old Testament. But you know that Jesus didn't just have three years of ministry. From 30 to 33 were not the only years Jesus was ministering on earth. His whole life, he was perfectly obedient to every single command of God. He fills up the Old Testament. This past fall, my oldest son, Henry, and his preschool class uh, all got a bud, a, a small flower bud, to go plant in the yard at home. And so Rachel and Henry come home, and they plant the flower bud right by our back door. And, and it was buried, and no one could see it. If you came over, you wouldn't know where it was. But Henry knew where it was, and he watered it a few times. But as springtime came, this bud underneath the ground that no one can see busted forth and up sprang a beautiful full flower. J.C. Ryle said that the Old Testament is the gospel in bud and the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Now here's the big thing for us. Jesus is holding out the test of truly following him as a disciple. Do we surrender to God as king the whole of his revelation in the Old and New Testament, or do we prefer to have God as a consultant, picking and choosing what we like and don't like? The question then is, what do you do with the hard parts of Scripture that contradict you? The parts of Scripture that contradict your culture or your feelings or your post-enlightenment instinct of reason or your tendency towards legalism what do you do with the demands of righteousness from the Bible? People will say in our feeling-driven culture, in a culture that doesn't like principles, I'm okay with Jesus, I just don't like the Old Testament God. Maybe you said that. That's a problem because the Old Testament God is Jesus. Jesus is the Old Testament and New Testament God. Trusting Jesus is trusting the Scriptures. Are you tempted to sift through the Bible and decide what you like and don't like? Or do you let the Bible sift through you and decide what it doesn't like? The reality is that either you're the authority of your life or the Bible has authority over your life. There is a lot at stake on how we view the Bible. It will impact 
how we relate to God and how we live, how we determine righteousness will guide what really matters to us. I love what Tim Keller said. Let me give a preface before I read what he said. When Keller says Stepford God, he's referring to the show Stepford Wives. Uh, It's a show where wives were created to be robots who could be commanded to do whatever they wanted. So this is what Keller says. If you don't trust the Bible enough to let it challenge and correct your thinking, how could you ever have a personal relationship with God? In any truly personal relationship, the other person has to be able to contradict you. Now, what happens if you eliminate anything from the Bible that offends your sensibility and crosses your will? If you pick and choose what you want to believe and reject the rest, how will you ever have a God who can contradict you? You'll have a Stepford God, a God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. Only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in a real friendship or marriage, will you know that you've gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. So an authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. When God contradicts us, consider the possibility that it may not be God who has the problem. Now, hear me, it is okay to, like, to, to not like parts of the Bible. There are times that I wish I could skip over parts of the Bible and not preach certain parts of the Bible. We will all question and struggle with it, and that's okay. We may not like what the Bible says about sexuality, about generosity, about judgment, about the exclusivity of believing in Jesus or the radical inclusivity of Jesus to love the outcast and the immigrant and the marginalized. We can be honest, but following God is trusting that His ways are higher than our understanding. Trusting God is devoting ourselves to the whole Bible, allowing it to challenge us, and then surrendering our lives to it, even if we don't understand it or feel it. And it will produce righteousness. Second thing from this passage that helps us pursue righteousness is dealing with our inner life. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. To relax the law, it's to loosen its hold on the conscience. It's to loosen its grip on our very lives. Now, that feels daunting Jesus is talking here about the Pharisees, and the Pharisees were strict adherers to the law of God. They were extremely careful to obey the 240-plus commands and the 360-plus prohibitions. Uh, The Old Testament commanded the 10% tithe, the offering to God. The Pharisees gave 20%. They wanted to make sure they went above and beyond obedience to the law. But for the Pharisees, obedience to the law was duty. It was external compliance. It was cosmetic. It was a detached following of God. It was outside obedience, but their heart, their inner life was detached. And Jesus is after something different. Jesus is after the heart. Jesus wants us to look at the reasons for our behaviors. Jesus wants us to examine the motives of why we do what we do. God is after a deeper obedience a heart righteousness. 
the Pharisees relaxed the law by making it about the outside, and Jesus says, no, it's about the inner life that then leads to the outside life. We'll see in the coming weeks how Jesus takes the law of God deeper. He's going to make six statements. You have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. You have heard that it was said, you shall not murder, but I say unto you, you shall not have hatred in your heart. You have heard it said that you shall not commit adultery, but I say unto you, you shall not lust in your heart. Jesus is taking us deeper. Let me try to illustrate this deeper obedience. There can be two people that are doing the exact same thing, but for differing reasons. And we, we know this to be true. Take two people who are doing an act of service. One person serves, and they give, but while doing so, they look around at other people, and while they're serving, they, they proclaim either inside or outside to others, I can't believe those other people aren't serving like us, like me. I'm here, why not them? Now, there's another person that serves in the exact same way, but isn't concerned about other people. They're just truly thankful to give their time and their talents and to serve God joyfully. Two people doing the exact same thing on the outside, but their insides very different. Give you another example. Take two people who give money, offering to the Lord. One person gives for a tax write-off. One person gives to earn approval from God, or they think they can twist God's arm by giving financially. And another person gives like a family in our church that I know. This family could give online if they wanted to. They could give once a month or once a quarter if they wanted to. But weekly, this family writes a check, and they put it in the offering basket as it goes around because they want to experience the tangible letting go of the check and it falling into the offering plate so that they are reminded every week that this is an offering to the God who's redeemed them and loves them. Same act, differing motives. One way to relax the law is to be very religious, concerned primarily with the external, but the heart is detached. And this type of living, take my word for it because I've lived it and can still live it, leads to anger, shame, or pride. Anger when others aren't doing what you're doing. Shame when you're not living up to the external standard you've set, or pride when you do. It's tempting to be the Pharisee. Even though there are many external rules, this life of living according to the external, it's somewhat manageable, somewhat controllable, but this religious way of living, it's a transactional approach to following God, and there's no love affair. It's full of pressure, and it's burdensome. It's no fun. I think we can earn things from God by how we live rather than doing things for God because we've received love from Him. The other way we can relax the law of God is not just through religious means, but it's through non-religious means. Through erecting other metrics of righteousness apart from God and measuring others and ourselves by those metrics. Be it success, be it our children, our performance, our activity, our approval, our body image. The list could go on and on and on. Let me say this, that if we define ourselves by anything other than what Jesus has accomplished for us, we are in trouble. Because it will lead to the feeling of emptiness and contempt when we don't measure up. And we will all fail to measure up at some point. I, I recently heard the story of 
Dave Mustaine. How many heavy metal fans uh, do we have in here? There's like none in the first service. One, two, three, something like that in here maybe. Heavy, so Dave Mustaine is a guitarist, heavy metal guitarist, uh, and he was in this band, and the band let him go. And so Dave Mustaine forms his own heavy metal band, named themselves Megadeth. Some of you maybe have heard of Megadeth. They sold over 25 million albums. Dave Mustaine's net worth, $20 million. Most of us would agree he made it. He was a success. Do you know the band that fired Mustaine? Metallica. The greatest heavy metal band of all time who sold over 180 million albums. In a 2003 interview, Mustaine broke down weeping about how crushed he was and still is by his failure to stay with Metallica. One of the most successful musicians of all time considered himself a failure. If you use anything other than what Christ has accomplished for you by his life, death, and resurrection, it will lead to some form of self-contempt when you fail to measure up or some form of contempt for God that he doesn't give you what you demand and give it to you when you want it. Hear me, God owes us nothing. He owes us nothing. He's already graciously given us all things. He's after your heart, a deeper obedience and righteousness. We have to deal with our inner life. We have to repent of erecting other measures to define ourselves and give us righteousness, and we have to repent of our religious self-righteousness. There's a third thing that we've got to pursue in order for righteousness to matter. We have to delight in salvation. Look at verse 20 again. Verse 20, it can feel like works righteousness if we don't understand that Jesus is talking about a deeper inner heart righteousness. The way that our righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees is through faith in Jesus, an alien righteousness, a righteousness from Jesus outside of ourselves is given to us, is granted and imputed to us and applied by the Holy Spirit. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 31, 33, God speaking, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. It's a heart obedience. The way God promised to do this is by Ezekiel 36, 27. He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. See, evidence of our receiving salvation in Jesus is a new heart. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us, giving us the desire to walk out salvation in righteousness. A deeper and deeper righteousness of the heart that exceeds the Pharisee is granted to us by God as Jesus declares us righteous through his life, death, and resurrection. And when we trust in Jesus, the Spirit calls us to walk out his righteousness as we live surrendered to the whole Bible. A righteous life comes as we are enamored by Jesus, as we see the beauty of Christ and we delight in our salvation. You don't need to clean your life up and come to Jesus. You don't need to leave here and go get righteous this week and come back in here to meet Jesus. 
The invitation is to come to Jesus in our struggles, in our own unrighteousness, and then accept and receive and delight in all that he's done on our behalf. And as our relationship with God is much more love affair than transactional, we will surrender wholly unto him as he's revealed in the Bible, knowing that his ways are better than our own ways. Let me close with an image of our life with God. How many of you have ever gone sailing? I've been like a handful of times. A few of you have been sailing. Even if you've never been sailing, you know this to be true. Uh, the two things that have to happen if you're going to have a good sailing experience. One, you need to have some skills, right, some knowledge on how to operate the boat. That's got to be true. But no matter how skilled you might be, what's the other thing necessary that actually we have no control over for us to have a good sailing experience? The wind. If there is no wind, the boat will not move. At the same time, the wind can blow fiercely and the boat never move, or at least not move in the right direction if the sail's not properly raised. You can even be capsized by strong winds and strong waves. I think this is a great analogy of our life with God. No matter how determined we might be, we cannot change our hearts. We cannot make ourselves care deeply about the righteousness that God cares about. No amount of knowledge, no amount of grit will make it happen. We need the wind. We need the Spirit of God to blow on us. We need the grace of God and the power of God to move our hearts and change our hearts. While we cannot control the wind, we can catch the wind. And in order to catch the wind, we must draw the sail. And our passage gives us two ways to do that. The scriptures of the Old and New Testament and the journey into the inner life of repentance and faith. And righteousness will matter to us when our lives are sails fully drawn, Holy Spirit blowing His grace, love, and power into our hearts as we devote ourselves to the whole Bible and we deal with our inner life. And it will lead us to a deeper and deeper righteousness. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would lead us to this place where the inside connects to the outside. Lord, if we're people in here that struggle with being overly external and cosmetic with our righteousness, or if there are those of us that succumb to creating our own measures of righteousness, would you lead us Lord, to confess those things so that we can come to Jesus and see the fullness and joy of our salvation, that we're freely given his righteousness, and that as the Spirit dwells within us and we're surrendered to you as king, not as consultant, but as king, Lord, we, we can live out the life, the good life, the good life of union with you, Jesus. I pray that that would be true for us this morning. As we leave this place, would you go with us? In your name I pray. Amen.